Well, hello there, woman beings, and welcome to another episode of the Woman Being Podcast. Today, we have a treat. We have the one, the only, sex evangelicals joining us. We're going to talk about evangelicalism. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about everything in between because it's all connected, and you're going to have a great time. So we're just going to dive right in. This is Woman Being, where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change our minds without expectation or judgment. We will hold a safe space and support each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine. All right, woman beings, today we have the wonderful, the stunning, the astounding wow. Julia and Jeremiah here with us. I am <laughs> so excited for this episode with them. They are the hosts of the Sex Evangelicals podcast, which is the sex education the church did not want you to have. We all know a little bit about that. So they are both um, Boston-based licensed psychotherapists and certified sex therapists who work with clients in Massachusetts. So they're just stunning. I've been binging y'all's podcast. I am so excited to have you both here today. So welcome. Thanks. It's great to be, it's great to be here. Just to like give a little introduction, can you tell us about yourselves and how the Six Evangelicals podcast came to be and what the Six Evangelicals means? Give us a little context. So as you already mentioned, Sex Evangelicals is the podcast about the sex education that the church didn't want all of us to have. Yeah. We are licensed sex therapists, and we also have our own personal experiences growing up in evangelical and fundamentalist communities. So as we have continued to practice as sex therapists, we also wanted to create other avenues to support those, specifically those who grew up in evangelical, Mormon, or Pentecostal types of communities who were harmed by the church's messaging around sexuality and are working to reclaim their sexuality. We had a funny comment on our Substack a couple of weeks ago that said, what is a sexvangelical? <laughs> I'm like, oh, we hadn't really thought of a sexvangelical as a person. Yeah. We just thought about it as a podcast. So a sexvangelical, I suppose, and I think the way that I answer this is something along the lines of a person who grew up in a religious context who is exploring sexuality uh, at mm. some point. And one of the things that we find is that when you explore sexuality, when you grow up in the church and when you explore sexuality from some of the comprehensive ways that we do, that action in and of itself actually begins to inch you out of the church a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you start talking about consent, when you start talking about uh, some of the, and, and begin asking questions about, well, what kinds of arrangements do you want for your relationship? That oh, begins sure. to, uh, sitting with those questions and giving yourself permission to answer those questions begins to uh, blow the doors open for um, a whole new world uh, that the church, uh, as we say in the podcast, like didn't want you to do. And, and mm. it's like Pandora's box, right? Once you open the door, once you open the box, you cannot shut it again. Yeah. A couple of people have asked us about our tagline and and have asked really curiously, how come the tagline is the, the sex education you didn't get from the mm. church or yeah. that you missed? And the didn't want you to have is actually very, very intentional Absolutely. because mm. the church specifically 
kept important information about our bodies, about psychology, about relationships, and a whole host of other really, really important stuff from us. Yeah. I love that that is your tagline too, because you two obviously are therapists, you are super educated, and you're doing your own work on top of doing work on the behalf of others. And as I've continued to listen to your podcast, it's been very healing for me because you both can articulate things that I have not been able to yet. And like, it's kind of like, as I've been doing my own work, like I can't quite put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'll say something like super casually, like, well, and you know, like, la, 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 la. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And it's just like a mind blown moment. I also want to pause and note that you two have a sub stack. So everyone should go check it out, read all their stuff and enjoy and have your mind blown as well. Because we're all out here doing our own purity culture work. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, just to get everybody kind of on the same page and like define our terms. I feel like that's something that y'all value very much in yes, your field of do. work. <laughs> <laughs> to define our terms, could you just explain really what it means to have grown up in a fundamentalist evangelical community or yeah, fundamentalist or evangelical or both? whether those are different terms or not. Yeah. Well, well, so there's two parts to that question that that really stand out. One Mm -hmm. is, what does it mean to be an evangelical or fundamentalist community? Mm -hmm. And uh, the terminology that we've started to use is impish, E-M-P-ish. So Mm -hmm. impish is an acronym, Evangelical Mormon Pentecostal Churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because even though they like try to distinguish themselves by different denominations, there's so many similarities between the three uh, different churches, particularly when it comes to uh, success in relationships, uh, the role of gender and performing uh, gender yeah. in really rigid ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's there's very common uh, language that get used in those communities. Um, so, uh, so so denominations within that can include Baptist, uh, the wonderful no- uh, denomination called non-denominational, <laughs> uh, Presbyterian, uh, some yeah. some uh, some Methodist churches, uh, things like that. The second part that stands out to me is the idea of what does it mean to have grown up in Mm. an an evangelical community? And that's a a really key feature as well, because uh, for me and Julia, and and, and maybe for the three of you as well, and, and others who are listening, growing up in an evangelical community wasn't my choice. I was born into this. So it's not yeah. like my parents took baby Jeremiah aside and said, now baby Jeremiah, we're going to church. Do you want to come with us? And I'm like sucking my thumb and like, yeah, <laughs> like, like, of course not. No, I'm just like going with this because this is part of the family culture. Yeah. And for me and for a lot of folks, like the church was my second family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, became, it became my extended family, which means all the... All, all the rules that apply to uh, to families around uh, around the way that emotion works, the way that communication works, the way that hierarchy works, uh, and, and the challenges of moving in and out of that, like that, also applies to churches as well, mm-hmm. uh, which which creates some really heavy complications, especially given some of the uh, ri- rigid fundamentalist, like literalist types of of language uh, that that can come from the church, particularly the more that impish churches marry themselves to the Republican Party. Mm. And I'll add that for most empish communities, purity culture is embedded within that system. That's right. Distinguishing between abstinence-only education and purity culture is super important. They exist in a Venn diagram, so they definitely overlap. Mm. 
Purity culture is far more than the dictate not to have sex, whatever sex means before you get married. Right. Purity culture is a system in which people are defined uh, by their gender and certain parts of sexuality associated with gender. The church loves the gender binary. So for men, that double bind is you are this sexual monster. And Mm -hmm. on one hand, God made you that way. So you should embrace it. And at the same time, you've got to fight it. What a mind fuck. And then for women, the major double bind is that your worth is defined by your purity specifically as a virgin until you get married. And then your primary role exists to serve the pleasure of your husband. The double bind there is that you are both Mm over-sexualized, even as a very, very young child, as young as seven, eight, nine, Mm -hmm. and also sexually repressed. Mm -hmm. So what a shit show. (laughs) How how can one then enter into mutually pleasurable sexual experiences following that awful structure in which that's how you exist defined by gender and uh, sexuality that way? Right. Because there's this element of like, I mean, I can speak from my experience as a woman of being over-sexualized and being taught that like just the wrong movement of my body could send a man spiraling into sin, um, no matter who he is. It could be my pastor. It could be my uncle. It could be my, you know, like, you know, peer. It doesn't matter. Um, Yet at the same time, being required to maintain this strict level of purity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, being an evangelical Christian, asking Jesus into my heart was actually deeply connected to what I was indoctrinated uh, to believe in terms of my sexuality. The thing that I often mention is the conversation I had at nine years old with my friends about whether or not spaghetti straps were sinful. Oh, oh my God. God. Spaghetti yes. straps would be a part of this conversation. <laughs> spaghetti <laughs> straps should be a part of this conversation. <laughs> uh, because that is just one example of the ways that the combination of evangelicalism, purity culture, and the Republican National Party creates a context in which you can be an eight-year-old girl and the decision about whether or not you wear spaghetti straps could have the consequence of being raped and that would be your fault or going to hell. Absolutely. Gosh, do you remember when leggings came on the scene and it was like to show the butt or not show the butt was like the biggest decision of your life? It was. I distinctly remember my past pastor's wife she loved leggings but she like would always wear them with like a long long shirt so that it didn't show her butt and there were lots of like side conversations of like you can wear leggings but you gotta cover Cover the butt butt. like be comfy that's fine but cover the butt yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah. you were allowed to wear (laughs) leggings yeah Yeah, totally That's progressive Christianity for you. So progressive. Well, it's funny because looking back now we're talking about that. Looking back, I kind of got hit with a double whammy where my youth pastor was also an abstinence only educator in schools. Dear Lord. And so (laughs) she not only led us in our faith, but also had a very 
distinct sort of emphasis on sex and relationships in her preaching and her back and forth relationships. And then, so that was one. And then on the other hand, I had a father who's super, super strict about my clothing and what I wore and dating and, you know, all of that. So I felt like, whereas my youth pastor may have been a little looser about dating and what I wore, my dad was super strict on that. I feel like all of the things you're saying about being hyper repressed, yet also hyper oversexualized, really applied to my background. Um, and so that leads me to ask, like, as sex therapists, you've probably encountered a lot of people coming out of this purity culture who um, are trying to figure out their sexuality. And so I'm just like, what are the repercussions of these toxic Christian teachings? Oh, <laughs> how, how many examples do you want us to give? <laughs> I mean, as many as is necessary. We, yeah, we do have time. <laughs> well, so I, I want to make a caveat to your question here because you know you were talking about an abstinence-only sex educator. And it's important to remember that the U.S. government spends over $300 million each year mm -hmm. uh, in grants uh, specifically for abstinence-only education. Yeah. So if you want to get horrified uh, mm -hmm. and, and and like learn a little bit more about this, I invite people to uh, Google search the Title V Abstinence Only Until Marriage Program, uh, which was started wow. in the Clinton administration and uh, it was signed in 1996. Actually, about uh, the legislation came into wherever it ended up in Congress. I don't remember if it started in the House or the Senate. Uh, three months after um, the True Love Waits uh, community put uh, 210,000 uh, um, purity pledges uh, mm. onto Capitol Hill. Mm. So anyway, read that. It's horrible. It's terrible. Uh, the other thing that I would add is recognizing that Every single state uh, has accepted funding either from that specific grant or from other grants uh, that, that are connected with this. So, so, so um, abstinence-only education is public policy. Yeah. So uh, this isn't just people who grew up in the church. This is everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, I would suggest everyone about the age of 45 and under. Um, there is a decent to high likelihood that you went to a school um, or were engaged in some sort of a nonprofit who promoted abstinence-only education. Mm -hmm. um, so you didn't have to grow up in the church have been fucked over by the church. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I mean, it even makes me think of like, um, this is so silly, but like in the movie Mean Girls, they talk about like the, the sex educator in Mean Girls is like, have sex and you'll die. Like it's straight to the, you must just be perfectly abstinent. And that was permeated into this like very big pop culture film mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with Christianity, but also I can see that link. Absolutely. Yeah. The church really loves to pretend that they are so countercultural, but yeah. actually messaging around gender and sexuality in and outside of the church are just different brands of typically the same messages. Mm. Yeah. So getting back to your question, then about how, what do we see then in, yeah. uh, in therapy? There are... There are like typical, like common, like clinical uh, things, everything from, um, 
from 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 pain, from sexual pain, um, mm-hmm. erectile uh, dysfunction. Uh, what we see more commonly is the absence of education around sexuality means that people are clueless to know how to communicate just in general, mm-hmm. uh, how to communicate about um, things related to sexuality, things outside of sexuality, um, things pertaining to um pertaining to communicating needs, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, though, clinical language and diagnostic language actually scapegoats the problem, yeah. which mm-hmm. is the lack of education in and outside of the church. So when I think about not only my clients, but when I think about my own personal story, what typically uh, is at the root is some level of shame and anxiety. And then that manifests either individually or relationally or both. Well, and we found like in conversations that we've had about purity culture, because we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. And I think it, a lot of the reason we started this podcast was because we were all, you know, deconstructing this, you know, background that we had had. And um, I remember we had one episode on consent where we all realized in the episode, like, oh, my gosh, like purity culture prevents you from understanding consent. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it actually promotes rape culture <laughs> in yeah, the right. sense that if you're only ever allowed to say no, you actually don't have a choice in saying yes. So like you're never truly consenting to en- anything because mm-hmm. if you say no and you want to have sex, that's not truly like your consent. And if you don't want to have sex and you say no, but you have it anyways, then you consider it's your fault. So, or if you say yes, then you're, then it's wrong anyways. Mm-hmm. So there is no, no yes in purity culture that doesn't come with a lot of shame and guilt and yeah. anxiety and all of those things. And so consent is such a por- important topic that we talk about today but purity culture just erases that from consideration Mm -hmm. unless you're married and then you own yes to your partner but like you're saying uh, that yes uh, may not be a yes that you actually want to give so totally totally in agreement with that yeah because then you're not allowed to say no like Mm -hmm. why would you deprive your partner of sex that's that's your duty as a married couple yeah for sure Yeah. Well, and that impacts other areas as well. I'll put myself on blast real quick Um, because I've been married for six years now and deconstructing for about six years now. And my husband and I were playing this fun little like card game the other night that has different like sections of questions. And one of them is like a spicy section. So it's like questions about desire and sex. And I realized, wow, it's still really weird. Like I cringe internally still Mm -hmm. to communicate desire for something. Mm -hmm. And so like that consent continues over. And if you don't actively undo that, it will still show up. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, Here's just one more thing <laughs> that purity culture has like just gifted me yeah. <laughs> that I'm like, it, it really is a, a, it just is a continual cycle right. if you don't actively work against it. Absolutely. We just did a series a few months back uh, called the seven deadly sexual sins, according to yeah. the church. Mm. And uh, the, the key word, of course, being don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't mm-hmm. have sex before you get married. Don't be gay. The yeah. third thing that we talk about is don't have wants, mm-hmm. which kind of ties into what, what what the three of you are talking about. 
yeah. uh, that, that, that anything that you uh, want, anything that you might desire, especially anything that you might desire that falls outside of uh, what uh, the, the purity culture kind of moderators are saying, which is just about everything, by the way, yeah. uh, <laughs> anything that you want is a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you is a threat. Your sexuality is a threat. Mm-hmm. Women's yeah. sexuality is a threat in different ways than men's sexuality, but, yes. but still, you you are a threat. Right. Yeah. Uh, Except for those spaghetti straps. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. Those are yeah. girls are causing me to sin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the reason I ask is, or I bring this up to hear about your experience as therapist actually working through it is it's helpful to understand kind of the quantifiable harm that. Um, has been caused at at such a mass level across people who are affected by purity culture. And so I'd love to hear, like, what has it looked like for the two of you to work through some of that fallout um, in your own lives and with your clients? Like, what have you seen in um, kind of figuring out how to like solve and work through all of that. So I, I really appreciate that question. And one of the hard things about this is Julia and I both have personal experience navigating this as well. Um, so mm-hmm. I was in a, a 15 year relationship that started when I was 19. Um, <gasps> and oh. our earliest sexual like physical experiences don't worry we were still good christians we didn't have actual intercourse (laughs) our early sexual experiences would end with with my partner shaking Mm. and weeping and apologizing and me just like hanging on for dear life and being like what is happening right now i didn't realize until much later that what was happening was she was having a panic attack and she was having a panic attack that, that was uh, connected with um, experiences related to purity culture, yeah. and and also and also wrecked with some variation of shame that prevented her from talking about it. And so we had some variation of that dynamic around uh, anxiety around sexuality for the entire 15 years of our relationship. Um, So, so this can like, this is really, really hard stuff to, to, to work through. Um, It's, it's really painful to acknowledge that, that this family, these people that purport to love you, that purport to care for you, drop the ball in these really significant ways. Um, and it takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of courage to, to do that. And it's, it's a lot of hard work to do that and to deconstruct together in, in, in a couple setting. Unfortunately, me and, and, and my ex were, were unable to do that. And, 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 and I grieve that a lot. I, I grieve, uh, uh, missed conversations, um, about, um, learning more from her experience about what it was like as a woman to, uh, kind of navigate and dodge like all the bullshit that she had to dodge. I, I've, since like Julia, you and I talk about it a lot, uh, yeah. both in and, out, in and out of this podcast, but, but, um, that's, that's, that's one of the ways that it looks, it, it, it can, it can result in a lot of avoidance. It can result in a lot of anxiety and it takes a lot of courage to, uh, recognize the ways that, 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 that it's harmed you to recognize that purity culture in and of itself is not your fault. Mm-hmm. But also that there are some like behaviors that, that, that develop in trying to navigate out of that, that kind of get wedged into the relationship that, that, that make it hard to have uh, open, honest dialogue uh, that can be really hard to take accountability off. 
The reason I say that the diagnostic language is a scapegoat is because it blames, as you were saying, Jeremiah, the individual or the couple about for the problems that you might Mm -hmm. be experiencing rather than blaming the systems that miseducated at the very least and abused at worst. When Mm -hmm. I got married, I am divorced at the very young age of 22, I found a sex therapist after my husband and I got married. At the time, I believe she was the only certified sex therapist in Ohio where I lived. Wow. Very poor resources. Therapists have a hard job. I would rarely say this about a therapist. She was not a good therapist. And Mm -hmm. I remember going to the first session with my ex-husband and her telling me that you have every sexual dysfunction in the DSM, which is the uh, manual that therapists use um, to diagnose. For those of you that are just it's, listening to this, I really appreciate the horrified looks at all <laughs> I'm just like, that's not actually possible, is it? Like, for you to have every single one, like, there's got to be, like, a billion. There are a lot. And that was absolutely devastating to my entire sense of self, especially because I grew up learning that my worth was in my sexuality. So what I would love to do is, uh, send all, um, my, uh, bills for my clients to the systems that hurt them because I spent and, uh, continue to see a therapist. I have spent thousands of dollars in sex therapy, primarily Mm -hmm. working through the shit that the church caused. And my clients have spent thousands of dollars paying me many, Mm -hmm. many thousands of dollars paying me. And I really wish they weren't the ones paying me. I think the church is all focused on the family, which made $110 million in revenue in 2021. Mm -hmm. Oh, in 2021. (laughs) Yes. 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 Yes.
you grew up with. Yeah. I, I think we're even seeing that like on a like an analogy might be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a therapist, but like we're seeing so much anxiety and ADHD show up more and more. And we're in a hyper communicative distraction based environment that mm-hmm. is not, you know, great for human focus and <laughs> right. and yeah. you know safety and security and things and so we're seeing like people are really affected by the environments that they grow up in mm-hmm. um and there's not something wrong with the individual per se yeah but, it's yeah, almost it's like a long healing journey. you got radiation poisoning you're bad yeah. you know like <laughs> it's kind of like well, and, and so this is one of the reasons that julia and i are doing sex evangelicals uh because mm-hmm. we are crazy enough to believe that we can help change the system <laughs> so that future people uh, can have the sex education that you and I didn't get. And it sounds like the three of you didn't get as, as teenagers, as young adults, um, so that we can all have like better, more fulfilling uh, lives and also like have a uh, better decision-making skills and the ability to uh, negotiate those uh, in, in a live uh, ongoing experience. So. Yeah, yeah. I genuinely yeah. adore my clients, but it would be really great if they didn't need to see me or you or a sex therapist. So then all of that being said, I'm curious if y'all could just tell us a little bit more about uh, your background in the evangelical space and then how that has influenced your personal story. So we want to dive into Julia and Jeremiah. (laughs) We're talking about the impact of purity culture in a broad sense, like let's focus in. Um, and would you two mind sharing some about how that's influenced your personal story? So I grew up in a denomination called the Church of Christ. Uh, The Church of Christ is about a million and a half, two million people. A really fascinating history. Uh, Their kind of claim to fame is is, uh, acapella worship, which is is really, really pretty to to sit and and listen to once you kind of look past the lyrics (laughs) about Jesus being your boyfriend and fleeing the world. Oh, good. But... So in my denomination, there's actually a lot of ways that I was spared uh, some of the purity Mm. culture pieces because the Church of Christ is like, oh, well, we're better than the Baptists. We're better than the Methodists. So so, so no, we're not going to participate in this because that's what the Baptists do. So, so, so their arrogance definitely spared me a lot of, of stuff. <laughs> Julia and I, uh, Julia will make a lot of references. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, how did you miss that? Uh, <laughs> thank you, the Church of Christ. I owe, uh, I owe someone in the Church of Christ an, an article about this. Um, so the Church of Christ didn't talk very explicitly about sex. They had a hell of a lot to say, though, about gender. Mm. And so uh, very typical, uh, I'm sorry, very stereotypical gender norms. Um, The story that I tell that best typifies this is that I was a little boy. I was seven uh, and attending a a Bible study uh, with people. uh, And there were several weeks where it would be me, uh, my mom, uh, my my dad had to work late, or that was his excuse anyway, had to work late. In my dad's case, I think it was actually true. (laughs) Some of the other men. But um, it was me, uh, my mom, uh, about six other moms, and a bunch of uh, the children, all of whom happened to be girls. So there would be Mm -hmm. times that I'd be the only boy that was there. 
And I would have women telling seven-year-old Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah, you are, you are the boy here. So uh, boys are, boys have to lead the prayers. Boys have to read the scriptures. And so mm. like little obedient Jeremiah is like, okay. And like uh, <laughs> leading prayers in my squeaky God awful Southern accent and, uh, and, and, and reading scripture and, and, and it's being positive reinforced. Good job, Jeremiah. I'm so proud of you. Like, like, like that's how I learned about uh, masculinity and the expectations around masculinity. Yeah. Uh, interestingly speaking, not from, from other men that came later, that came in middle school, but, mm. but it came really, really early actually from women uh, who, wow. uh, who, who bought into uh, the, the uh, sociological structures of the church of Christ, which is women yeah. are to be silent in the assembly. Uh, and that includes mm. Bible studies, apparently. Uh, and, and men are even when it's pretty much all women in the Bible study. Uh, <laughs> right. What would they have done they if you were to sick. a seven-year-old boy? And I'm thinking about it, I'm like, thank God I turned out to be a good person. Like, yeah. this is how narcissists develop. Yeah, is, is yeah. through unchecked privilege that give mm-hmm. that, that are given. I mean, we're seeing this with Donald Trump, right? Oh yeah, this could have turned out so bad. Uh, yeah. But um, that's something that that I learned that uh, men are expected to uh, play leadership roles, even if they don't want them to. Uh, that that's 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 expected of it, and, and like that's that's been something that's been part of my journey. I, yeah. I, I'm a pretty driven person and I don't know how much of that is just like characterological um, and how much of that is like rooted in like seven-year-old Jeremiah, like people pleasing all of these uh, yeah. um, people, all these women that are saying, Hey, in our denomination, uh, we are silent. Men are not, uh, even though you're a boy, like step mm-hmm. up and, and play this, this leadership role. Um, mm. So, so, so that's been really, really hard for me to, um, I, I think that that's been the biggest way, uh, that my denomination has impacted me personally is wow. recognizing that I don't always have to be in charge of things. Things are going to be okay. If I take a step back and read a book, let's say, or, yeah. uh, or, or go for a walk. Um, that's something that I'm still to this day, like having a, a hard time unlearning and Julia bears a witness to this every single day and, um, showers me with amazing amounts of patience. So Thanks. you're welcome. Julia, over to you. You actually grew up more in a traditional purity culture following denomination of sorts. I don't know if I would say traditional. That's true. <laughs> in terms of purity culture, uh, this is perhaps a bit of an ageist comment, and I really don't mean it to be. I only mean it in like the visual sense, but I looked like an Amish girl, but also like an 85 year old woman, like at the age of nine. So I, I don't know if I would call that like a traditional growing up experience. We had sure. some like very strange uniforms and okay. I graduated with three other people. So yeah. my Christian community was very, very, very insular. Hmm. I love the question that you asked such a great question and a hard one to answer because when I think about the impact of evangelicalism on my life, the answer to an extent is 
my entire life. Even Mm -hmm. what I do right now, professionally speaking, is so rooted in the experiences that I have. Yeah. The anecdote that I would start with would actually be the second time I went to therapy as an adult when I found a great sex therapist in Boston and... My ex-husband and I went to see her for therapy. I still think about her to this day and the really impactful role that she played in my life. She asked me about my growing up experience because that's what a good therapist does, especially when trying to assess for a sexual challenge. And I remember telling her, I grew up in an insular, fundamentalist Christian community but I don't really think that impacted my sexuality all that much. And I look back on that today and I want to hug that 24 year old because I genuinely didn't know. And the unpacking process is a long, long process. I grew up in with three main structures in my life. My church, which was an independent Baptist church, very focused on the family influenced, mm-hmm. a Christian camp that uh, really focused on hell. Mm-hmm. That's my summary of it. And then <laughs> my Christian school that yeah. was equally problematic for different John, kinds of reasons. Jonathan Edwards Academy. Yes. The school no longer exists. So you won't find anything about it on the internet. Yeah. Most likely but Jonathan Edwards is a famous theologian and his most famous surgeon, surgeon, surgeon. Uh, his most famous surgeon <laughs> demons of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> His most famous sermon, I believe, was describing humanity as sinners in the hands of an angry God, yes. like a spider mm. hanging over the hit, the pit of hell by yep. a spider web string. So yep. <laughs> my life was defined by heaven, hell, and sexuality. So when I was 24 and finally seeing a good therapist for the first time, that's 24 years of a lot to unpack. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) What a journey. What a trip. What a a mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I mean, like, obviously you two have, have moved so far from all of that upbringing and you've, you've had these opportunities to work through it, to deconstruct it, to pull apart what you believe and um, how you operate in relationships. Uh, but also, if we want to go on the juicy side of things, mm-hmm. you've talked in your podcast about how you also had an affair with one another. And I want to dive into that because I think it's relevant to this, this oh, purity totally. culture story. Um, yeah. And so we want to hear more from you, uh, like the context of, of that happening and sort of how all of this purity culture um, and that religious context fed into your story as a couple now um, and as a couple as you like went through all of all that comes with that. I was actually really happy that you wanted to talk about this, not because I enjoy necessarily talking sure. about having an affair, but because yeah. it is such an important topic when mm-hmm. we're discussing uh, evangelicalism or empish communities and yeah. sexuality. And 
we are both happy to, to talk about more of the details, but to set up the conversation, mm-hmm. taking the morality of out of having an affair is actually really, really important. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. is hard to do, even hard mm-hmm. to do for me, but what affairs are justified or not justified is actually very much a red herring to how Christian communities set up the context in which a person might have some very difficult choices. Hmm. So I will take account for the choices that I made and the structures in my life set me up to make some really hard choices. As Hmm. I mentioned, I grew up in purity culture and got married when I was 22. I had very little, uh, sexual experience prior to that. And all the sexual experiences that I had were filled with anxiety and shame. I bought into the false bill of goods that when I got married, the sexual experiences that I would be having would be blissful and incredible and, perpetuate into all eternity. The opposite (laughs) occurred. I Mm. cried every single day of my honeymoon and I still get sad thinking about a year after I got married on my anniversary, I spent the day crying in bed Mm. and I was devastated because this is far more than having bad sex. Having bad (laughs) sex is bad, (laughs) but This was the realization that I actually didn't know at the time that my entire worth as a woman was defined by my virginity and then being a sexually pleasing object. I say object specifically for my husband. So when I hated sex and my husband and I, ex-husband and I were having sexual problems that spoke to literally my entire existence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause you had lost the virginity (laughs) and then you didn't get to fill that gap with this blissfully amazing sex life. So where is your worth at that point? Yes, Right. Where is my worth? And I didn't have that. Mm. Um, I was very alone, which is a whole other topic. Now, fast forward years and years later, and I had done some really, really good healing work in therapy. However, my sexual relationship with my ex-husband was still fraught and hot take, controversial take, sometimes the damage is too much to heal, sexually Mm. speaking, in a relationship. Mm. So I then had the choice of continuing to stay married in a monogamous relationship with my husband with sex that I hated, Mm -hmm. or I could have an affair, or I could get divorced. Now, I chose to have an affair. And I was happy for the first time in well over a decade. Now, I was also the most alone that I had ever been in my entire life. That's Mm -hmm. a really hard choice to make. Mm -hmm. I was lucky when I got divorced in the sense that I was financially sustainable and I had friends in my life outside the church who were in my corner. 
Many Mm. people, especially women, when they're faced with those three choices, might not actually be able to choose divorce because they might not actually have the financial stability to stay alive. And they might literally lose every single person in their life. Yes. So... While choosing to have an affair was a complicated choice that very much hurt another human being. And the morality of it is a conversation to have at another time. When we're thinking about evangelicalism, sexuality, and affair, we have to realize that the lack of sex education and the messages that men and women receive often set them up to have those hard choices. Yeah, well, because at that point, there was no good option, really. Like Because from the church's perspective, like both an affair and a divorce are immoral. Like they are not allowed. Yeah, but also staying within that relationship is like, I would say immoral to yourself. Like you are then betraying yourself and you, you don't have an option that is clear cut as as a, a good outcome. Right. So all bad choices. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you made the comment about divorce uh, mm-hmm. and, and divorce being this awful thing because being married is a way that the church acknowledges you as an adult. Yeah. And so getting divorced yeah. is a, for a lot of communities and, and my, the, the church community that I was in at the time that all of this was happening, it was kind of sort of unclear uh, whether or not, uh, how, how they would have responded uh, had I gotten divorced in this process. But, um, but, but right, divorce is, is equally, um, equally sinful uh, as, mm-hmm. as having an affair. So rewinding, I mentioned in my, uh, mentioned a few minutes ago um, that, my partner, my ex and I had uh, a, a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks connected with early sexual experiences. Um, yeah. In the Throughout the marital relationship, we, we kind of figured out some ways to, to, to make it work, uh, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I did a terrible thing. I decided to become a sex therapist. So (laughs) in my first sex therapy class, uh, we talked about uh, the ethics of talking about sexuality with, uh, with, uh, with clients. And there's this idea called the plicit model. Um, So the plicit model is an acronym for permission. We ask for permission, Uh, limited information. We ask for permission, talk about a very uh, limited thing, Uh, specific suggestions. So, so we only talk about like what the specific topic is at hand. Uh, and then intensive therapy is the IT. So, so if we choose to go further than that, we can go more into intensive therapy. Mm. So we're starting with plicit uh, and starting with permission. And I had the thought, oh, fuck, I have been doing this wrong all of this time because the dynamic that we've had gotten in around like having sexuality involved not talking about it. Because whenever mm. we talked about sexuality, that led to a panic attack. Mm. Yeah. And so I came home. I was really, really remorseful. I said, I'm so sorry. I have completely like fucked this up. I, mm. uh, I, I want to like do better. Uh, and my, my ex is like, Oh, it's okay. No big deal. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so one of the things that happened in the time of sex therapy and the time of the panic attacks, like two things happened. One, um, I started asking and talking a little bit more about sexuality uh, and the panic attacks came back. 
in different mm. in different variations. Um, and uh, second thing that that, that came uh, out of this was uh, not just the, the the panic attacks, but in anxiety also manifested itself in other ways in our relationship. Mm -hmm. I became insanely passive because I don't want to like trip the panic attack. And my, my, my ex became, became highly critical. Mm. And so uh, I suggested going to couples therapy a few times. She wouldn't do it. So I uh, really, really was coming to the decision of, you know what, this relationship isn't working. I'm pretty sure you're also having an affair, which she was. Um, so mm. I, 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 I need to figure out a way to end this and like gather up the strength and the courage to do this. And then I met Julia. Uh, And so my biggest regret in all of this process is that my relationship with Julia and the way that we connected and and we connected around like some, some really amazing things. Uh, Julia and I both, as you mentioned, talked about, um, talked a lot about our interest in sexuality and sexual health in, in working with churches, working with, with religious communities. Um, you know, so, so rather than having the really hard conversation with my ex, um, I, I cannot do this anymore. It's clear that you don't want to be in this relationship. Like, like, can we figure out a way to, to separate, uh, yeah. that, that I chose to like hit the detonate button, uh, by, by having an affair mm-hmm. and blew it up that way. Uh, which gets back to, to, to the hard choices. In my case, yeah. I think the, the regret that I have and, and, and what I'm curious about is that when I had an affair, like not, not now all the traditional gender roles, I'd like come back out. Uh, mm-hmm. She's super pissed at me. Um, and uh, the, the hypercriticism like comes out, the hyperpassivity from my end like comes out that that, that uh, dynamic only becomes more rigidified. And more importantly, and, and, and I grieve this a lot, we didn't get the goodbye that we deserved. Mm. I'm really glad that you brought up the, the conversation about the, the, the hard choices between, okay, divorce affair. And, and, and to, to be fair, many people who have affairs, has, it has nothing to do uh, with the, uh, the primary relationship that they're in. Uh, they mm-hmm. report being very pleased, very happy with the relationship. Uh, affairs can serve all sorts of functions, right? Uh, but, but, but in my case, uh, it, the, the affair was very much, a, a passive way to, uh, to get out of the relationship. Mm. Uh, and, and I wish I had had more courage, uh, mm. to step into the other bad choice, uh, which is still a bad choice, but, but, but may yeah. have aligned a little bit more with the values of like getting to say goodbye. Now that's all best case scenario. Who knows? Maybe she totally. wouldn't have, uh, she would have still dodged it. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Maybe she still would have done that. Like who knows? Right. Mm. But, um, but nonetheless, like, I didn't get to say the goodbye that I wanted to say. And I think to be clear, like I would say divorce has been considered a bad choice by the church, but it's, I think practically it's not necessarily yes. a bad choice. Absolutely. And oh, also actually, I, agree with I you. fully agree. Yeah. With you. Yeah. I just want to declarify that for our listeners too, yeah. just because the, I think that on one hand, like there's a whole rabbit trail to go down of like the construct that we must be with the same person forever uh, and sure. the construct that all humans are always going to be monogamous or always going to stay with the same person. Someone can serve a season of your life and then, and then not anymore. And that's okay. But I think that within Christianity and like the more fundamentalist evangelical realm of Christianity, especially it's 
marriage must last forever. There is no success outside of that. Uh, And sometimes there's excuses people make. I've heard even recently people talk about someone who's divorced. Is it okay for them to date again? And it's like, well, the other person was the one who wanted the divorce, not them. Therefore, they're in the clear. And it's like... Like, there's, like, ways that people try to work around it. But yeah. It, it's like it's, divorce chicken. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. whoever yeah. says it first is the one that loses. Yeah, the one that is then considered the more immoral yeah. one, the more <laughs> sinful one. Yeah. The right. other one was just a victim to the divorce. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I think about affairs and sexuality, actually, mm-hmm. in some ways, my own affair is less impactful than something I witnessed growing up. Mm. I, as I mentioned, grew up in a tiny, tiny, tiny community, all totally enmeshed, totally enmeshed. Yeah. My very close friend's mother had an affair and I was there at her home the night that she disclosed it to her husband. And Mm. by the next day, the entire community knew this wow. was blasted on the airwaves of prayer chains. And Whoa. Mm. This woman um, was barred from communion from the church and she was in the hospital in a psychiatric ward, suicidal for a period of time. Wow. And To me, I would say, well, no fuck. Of course she was because she was in, you know, early 2000s, like the representation of a red letter and Mm. something that is the scarlet letter and something that's really important um, to note within the Christian community is that sexuality doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the community. And ultimately the only people who should have known about this was the family and whoever they chose to let in. And I have so much sadness when I think about this. And of course, as a teenager, this communicated something very, very, very deeply to me about gender and being a woman and what happens when you step out of that and the Mm -hmm. literal potential consequence of death and suicidality. Um, And when we think about evangelical structures or Mormon Pentecostal structures, they often have a literal interpretation of the Bible. And the thing that infuriates me is like, we actually have a pretty literal example (laughs) of Jesus with a woman, quote unquote, caught in adultery. And so like, how fucking dare you tell this woman that she can't have communion when the actual example that we have from Jesus is I don't condemn you. So my own experience with an affair has been impactful for me in in all kinds of reasons that happened in my late twenties. What I witnessed when I was 15, actually 16 years old, that like has stuck with me and like will stick with me forever. So that brings up an interesting point, which is a trend that I've noticed. I don't have like factual data to back this up, but my anecdotal experience has been that women are treated so differently when the subject of an affair comes up than men. Oh, of course. And and I've seen men rehabilitated and returned to positions of power after having an affair with their wife. Um, Well, with someone else than their wife. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... Oftentimes you don't really hear from their wife 
And Mm -hmm. then suddenly their marriage is back together and they're fine. Yep. And um, or they get divorced. But either way, it seems like the men are able to kind of turn out okay within evangelical space as long as yeah. they, you know, repent and, you know, do the rituals that they need to do to apologize. Whereas I I don't see a lot of women in leadership positions or even just as like attenders of church communities who have an affair and are able to maintain their status or return Absolutely to their status not. within. Well, of course not, because men are expected to be sexual people. Yeah, mm-hmm. they can't help it. All those urges. And affairs represent women stepping into sexuality. Mm-hmm. And this, yeah. uh, Julia, do you want to talk a little bit about the research of Wednesday Martin? Yeah, everybody, everybody needs to read uh, Dr. Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue, which mm. is specifically about infidelity with women. And mm, even wow. the sex therapy world has really misused psychological data to reinforce the idea that men are quote unquote more sexual. If anything, women have greater sexual needs and greater needs for diversity of sexual experiences, including diversity of partners far more than men. When you actually look at anthropological data and data from like multiple fields of work and the research from Wednesday Martin in this book, it is air tight. And Mm. so if anybody would like to learn more about specifically, uh, affairs from the perspective of like women's health, this is the best resource. Uh, the other resource would be Esther Perel's book, State of Affairs, which is yep. uh, also super important work. But you're right that when women have an affair, the blow is, is so much higher because women have been subjugated and told even by the secular fields of psychology and sex therapy that they are less sexual. So they are mm. going against how God made them versus when men have an affair, like, like God made them to be like the sexual aggressors. That was the word that was taught to me in my, in my growing up experience. So mm. it's like, well, like, they can't really help having the affair, you know, those leggings, also the butts, <laughs> yes. the spaghetti straps. Yeah. So totally. And um, I also have had, I have witnessed in multiple church contexts, I can think of two specifically, one from growing up, one from adulthood, in which men in public spaces had affairs uh, and were, yes, rehabilitated, reinstated, and actually praised for their work that they yeah. did to um, to. <laughs> repent and yeah. to become a better person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. look how humble they are wow. for coming back into yeah. the space. Right. And, and admitting their sins and they came yeah. up and the church applauds and they hug him and I'm like dear God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like fuck those guys. Get out of here. So I think the question that stands then is do you both have differences in the way that I, that you experienced your affairs when that came out like were your church mm, communities yeah, aware it's like what was the difference in fallout between 
for both of you? So I had gotten fired from a church about three months prior <laughs> to meeting Julia. So oh. uh, thank God, because God <laughs> only knows how that church would have responded and actually fired mm. because of my uh, perspectives on sexuality. Totally. And wow. wanting to talk more about sexuality in, in, uh, in classes, wanting to encourage a church to get a pride flag, like that stuff. So, mm. yeah, both of us were outside and outside enough of Christian communities that we didn't have the backlash that I just described, especially for, for women. And if I had been a part of a conservative group, um, I don't know if I would have gotten divorced. Hmm. Uh, and to this day, I don't know who knows of my affair. Like it's on like a public podcast. So anybody could know, but because I wasn't too public podcast, right? Because I wasn't part of a church. I didn't experience that in an explicit way, Hmm. but there is, there is a sense that, if I were a part of those communities of origin, that that could have been me. I can imagine if you were in those spaces, the fear that you could have had the same experience that that woman that you watched go through an affair as a teenager right. go through. Yeah. Like the idea that like, oh, you could just be another one of her. Like you could just be another person who's now being becoming a pariah, experiencing suicidal ideation, all of that. Right, right. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for being so open with something that is so tender. It would be very easy for you guys to choose not to talk about this. And also, like, you don't owe this to anyone. But everyone that will listen, I think, will benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a little controversial question that just popped up as I was listening to you talk. Obviously, this is a hard, traumatic situation. It's hard to go through divorce, whether it's the correct decision. Like, Regardless of how correct the decision is for you or how good the decision is for you personally, I think it's probably very traumatic. But I just am curious, did you find having an affair an element of healing for you? Yes. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And I totally respect that it's a controversial question and people can send us hate mail. I hope they don't send you hate mail for asking that. (laughs) Um, And I... And I actually think that's a really important thing to say. Um, I had like a very PG related fling in college with like a non-Christian. So it was a big deal. (gasps) And I remember remember at the end of the summer being like, I've like sinned so much, but I don't feel guilty. And I actually really loved it. And, And the narrative in and outside of Christian context is that if you have an affair, you should be sorry about it. And there are parts of that decision that I made that was hurtful and harmful to another human being. And I Mm -hmm. take account for that. That being said, it was absolutely maybe one of the most important parts of my healing process. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. Cause I'm like, I feel like we just, we, anytime sex is in the conversation, we immediately stamp morality on top of it. Yes. And so I'm like setting that morality aside. I'm like, I would imagine that has a deep, that choice had a deep impact on you. And I'm like, you, I mean, Julia talked about how like for the first time you were happy. Hmm. I'm like, whoa, that's like a big decision. That's a paradigm shift for your inner world. And so I was like, 
I just had to, you know, poke the bear a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I had one friend who towards the end of the affair, I told what was hard is that I was happy for the first time and I couldn't talk to anyone. Yeah. You're so isolated. If someone tells you that they are having an affair, just for the listeners, Don't then tell them, have you thought about how this is impacting your partner? They have, like they definitely have. And even if like me, they might be happy for the first time, they are probably dealing with all kinds of guilt, all kinds of shame. Like they they know, like reminding them isn't particularly helpful. So I had confided Mm. in one friend and actually almost lost that friendship. I confided Mm. in another person. And again, taking the morality out of it, this was someone who had a similar background than me. And I told her that I was having an affair and she was, and we were eating dinner and she was like, yeah, I get that. And wow. you can talk about it if you want to talk about it. And it's wow. very important that she wasn't saying like, you go girl, like an mm. affair is a great decision. She yeah. said, I get that. And we can yeah. talk about it. Yeah. yeah. There's like acceptance with that. Right. And like, I think you're like, pariah, that I could right. still yeah. be a lovable person. Yeah. yeah. Right. You're so valuable. Like, and that doesn't change. You're talking about the affair from the context of the larger community and how the larger community responds. I, I, I also think in, in answering the question that there was a part of, of me that healed through this as well, because mm-hmm. so much of my sexuality has been this like weird mishmash of repress your sexuality. You're a sexual monster and, and, mm. and, and getting that and having that like played out uh, to some right. extent in, in, in my, in my marriage. Um, and to have a sexual experience in which it ended with, a like not getting shamed not having to like deal with anxiety i was like okay okay this is oh 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 like i'm not a horrible person i'm not a horrible person in this particular context for for having uh the 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 wants that i have for 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 talking about this for um you know for the decisions that, that, that we made that in and of itself outside of the responses of other people, that was really, really healing uh, for for myself as a sexual person. Well, and also it's like, Oh, I have had an affair and I didn't spontaneously combust. (laughs) Right. Like you, you don't immediately like, it's interesting to see when you make decisions that you've been told you shouldn't make. And then you realize, yes, this was not maybe a good decision, but actually it was not all bad. Yeah. Your whole world didn't crumble the way you were told that it would in deconstruction. People make choices, people make mistakes, people, you know, all these things happen. And that's part of human nature. That doesn't make a person bad or good. Like, yeah. Again, mo- removing that morality, removing that good, bad binary. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like, there's some good, there's some bad. It is what it is. Like yeah. again, that acceptance. Absolutely. And like Jeremiah said, statistics around affairs are wicked high. Affairs mm-hmm. are happening like all the time. Um, right. And so I, I recognize that they exist and happen for all different kinds of reasons. Esther Perel's um, research on this is incredible. That being said, while I can take account for my actions, a part of me wonders, well, if 
I didn't get married when I was 22. If somebody had like told me that like women have orgasms, <laughs> like sex and shame weren't associated with my relationship with my husband for X number of years, like maybe I wouldn't have been like right. stuck with that hard choice. Right. And right. so yeah. if folks have a hard time taking the morality aside, which I get, it's like hot. I even have a hard time sometimes taking it out. If you mm. can't take it out, maybe another approach is if we can generally say not keeping a commitment to your partner is a bad thing, then we at least have to talk about why those choices happen, what's the structures and the systems in and outside of the church that contribute to it. So we've got to talk about it if we want people to have better relationships. And again, for those who can't take the morality of it, if you don't want people to have affairs, well, we actually got to like look at the research, the facts, and then hear from the experiences of people. Well, and I think like the reason we wanted to hold space for this too is, I mean, we're we're here in no position to judge or decide good or bad on on any of that. But I think like the idea that there are listeners, there are people out there who have experienced affairs, who have experienced divorce, who have experienced um, like being trapped in their marriage or being trapped in their sexual relationship with their partner. And the main thing I think is um, you have choices and the choices that you have may not be stacked up in your favor, Yeah, <laughs> you know, but that there's opportunity still for healing and growth and um, for you to, you know, find joy and happiness in your life outside of this like crazy, crazy, ridiculous system we were just involuntarily raised in for a lot of us That's so right. yeah like you um, said jeremiah yeah. you didn't choose it no, my, my, my parents did not ask baby jeremiah if they, could <laughs> the church. they just did it yeah. but there's no consent like it was like a choice like we are such good people because we've chosen jesus oh sure oh, and now yeah. i'm like wait i didn't <laughs> yeah. actually choose I jesus choose, right, right. Um, you were yeah. not equipped to make any other choice totally which is why it's like the idea like or like Kelly mentioned earlier, our conversation around consent of like having all these revelations of like there was no consent like anywhere because it was like this is how you are a good person or this you is will how go to, to hell or yeah <laughs> like, your, that's your choice was burn forever mm-hmm. or don't. And right, like, right. well, obviously, I don't want that. <laughs> you know? And yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, like, I don't take account for, you know, the mistakes I made as a as a Christian person or, you know, the harm I caused, mm-hmm. you know, in the evangelical space that, you know, I as I got older and started to take more actions or whatever. But it does put it in context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's super important. Um with all that being said, I think I think one of the things um, I've been thinking about is in this deconstruction process of how do we move forward in terms of like healthy sexuality and conversations and um, how do I raise my kids someday and how do we, you know, how do we really talk about sex in, in a way that's good and, and I don't want to you know, basically throw the baby out with the bathwater, I guess, and and say everything was bad because of this harm that was caused to me necessarily. So maybe this is a controversial question, but is there any value in abstinence-only education? Like a lot of people in Christian spaces will admit that there's, 
you know, the way things have been done have been hard and be, and, you know, are willing to concede that like, oh, I'm so sorry, that was your experience. But they still want to maintain that like biblical value of waiting until marriage and having a monogamous relationship forever with your spouse. Like, do you think there's anything that can be salvaged there? A person could make an individual choice to save certain sexual acts for a particular point in their relationship, such as marriage. And that could be a really, really good choice for them. When we think about abstinence-only education as actual public policy, that strips a person away that strips a person's autonomy from them. Mm -hmm. So in terms of church, yes, I can salvage and hold some good things from church. In terms of abstinence-only education as public policy that doesn't give comprehensive education, I don't think anything in that is salvageable. Yeah, totally. Because abstinence-only education is a a very black and white system. It Mm -hmm. It is... abstinence or nothing is have sex and die like this in Mean Girls. It is an absolute as opposed to showing any nuance or choice or autonomy. There, I I, I wrote this note in prep for this in the the Title V bill that I I referenced earlier. There is one of the curriculum items, and I'm looking at my notes because I want to get it right. Bearing children outside of marriage has harmful consequences for the child. Okay. Oh. Uh, the child, the parents, uh, parents society. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose it's true if you're like 17 and that's true. Uh, sure. Okay. Like 17 year old, you get pregnant. Sure. That, that, that There's sociological challenges that are coming come to that. But what about say you're a couple in their late thirties who let's say have a shared vision for life and run a podcast about it. What do you want to say? <laughs> Sounds <that>? familiar. <laughs> I know. Right. So, uh-huh. so, exactly. Um, you know, Emma, what you're talking about regarding the, um, the lack of nuance. Mm-hmm. The lack mm-hmm. of context and understanding the context—that's uh, yeah. that's a, that, that's, that's a really big card, a common card that impish communities use. There's a level of that I think in a lot of impish or evangelical teaching. I think where like you're not actually presented with all the facts so that you can make that's right. you know an informed decision that works best for you. You're presented with usually a binary good and bad decision that you can choose from. Mm-hmm. So, so can I use a food metaphor? Of course. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I'm hungry. Um, if, if, if you're a chef, if you're going to school to become a chef, you mm-hmm. learn all sorts of, of ways of becoming a chef. You learn how to cook all sorts of things. You learn how to cook Italian mm-hmm. food. You learn how to cook Mexican food. You learn how to cook, uh, you learn how to cook Asian foods. You learn how to cook with different spices, different oils, different meats, different vegetables, things like that. So that when you leave culinary school, you have all these different options that you have. And then you can make decisions that, that, that work best for you. So me, for instance, like I would make a decision to eat, uh, to, to do Mexican food because, um, that's, that's my favorite. I can cook other things. Um, and, and, and I would have had like the training to cook other things. Why in the world would we expect that from like our chefs? And I'm just thinking about like chefs as well. There's a whole other, like, like teachers are like this, right? Uh, like, like, like our doctors are like this medical schools like this. We learn all this like comprehensive education. And then a person like can make choices with the, the comprehensive education based on what their interests are, based on what their skill sets are uh, to, to make decisions that work best for them. We do this with yeah. all 
these other industries. Why the hell don't we do this with sex education? Yeah, if your options are be abstinence or burn in hell or be abstinent or, you know, ruin your marriage forever, (laughs) you know, like that's going to set people up, you know, for failure in their sexual relationships and in their, you know, personal relationships and in their personal sexuality. Um, And the church oftentimes wants to gatekeep possibilities from their congregants as opposed to as opposed to promoting open and honest communication about different options um yeah and so i think i think what you said is really beautiful in terms of like honoring religious choice Mm -hmm. but also like being able to differentiate between when it's actually an autonomous choice and when when it's not i hope that in and outside of the church we can actually talk more about values than behaviors so when we think about helping let's say in this case adolescents or you know in our work with adults anyone make a choice having sex or not having sex that's actually a less helpful way to frame the conversation. What is a much better way to have the conversation is what do you like about this relationship? Um, what feels good in your body? Um, you know, what, I'm trying to think of a good example, but to ultimately shift from the behaviors and the values, I had a really meaningful conversation with a client who's no longer a client and he was, and I believe still is uh, very much within a religious community. And he knew that I was a sex therapist. He may or may not have found our podcast. And we had a really beautiful conversation, which I said, you know, client's name can we actually stop talking about whether or not porn is sinful or not sinful or masturbation is sinful or not sinful or X, Y, or Z is sinful or not sinful. Could you tell me what your values are on sexuality? Mm. One value that he had was sexuality being sacred. That's actually a value that I hold too. Not everybody will hold that value. I hold that value, but could sacred look like having a threesome? Sure. Could sacred look like um, saving specific sexual acts until after you get married? Sure. And another way that we can have more of these healing conversations is not to get stuck in what's good or bad, but to think about what's the value that you have and then how do you enact that value? Right. Mm. Like in the sense of um, does, you know, having sex with my husband because that's my job or my duty. Right. Is that, is that a way to honor myself and my husband? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, is it really at this core? You know, like that's a value that, you know, is deeper in the Christian faith than the specifics of the, the, the sexual act. Mm. But yeah, teaching kids to think, well, teaching everyone, I think adults need this too, but teaching us to think more critically in terms of like, what are actually my core values as they align with my faith and, and how, what is a way that I can like live this out or practice behaviors um, that align with that? Because you can, you can practice abstinence in a way that is really beneficial and beautiful. You can also do it in a way that's super harmful and betraying to yourself in the same way that you can practice polygamy or, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of that was just yeah. the one thing that came about <laughs> polygamy or other forms of sexual oh, yeah, expression yeah. in ways that are respectful to you and to others or not. Right. Yeah, sure. 
And it's just like having that more like value-based conversation over um, activity-based. And in thinking about values, um, you didn't use this language. So if you were referring to something else, let me know. But when you were talking about, you know, folks saying, hey, you know, like the crumpled up flower metaphor was not really (laughs) great, but let's make sure we like hold to this like biblical narrative. I interpret that as what I would say, like purity culture 2.0. And there's a lot of influencers out there. What's disturbing about the purity culture 2.0 is that even if we are getting rid of like some of the most egregious types of metaphors, Mm -hmm. the values actually around gender and sexuality tend to be the same. We're not going to tell you that you're like a licked Oreo if you've (laughs) had sex because no one else is going to want that licked Oreo, but we are going to tell you that, you know, your worth as a human being, as a woman is Mm -hmm. still to be subservient to men's sexuality. So that's what we've got to be really like careful in distinguishing. It's like, okay, what, what's actually the value that this person is communicating about sexuality, about gender, about relationships? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I see that. I don't know if y'all are familiar with like moral revolution, which is, uh, Oh, they right. should dive into They're it. like a, a sexuality uh, group <laughs> that is um, stemming from stemming from Bethel Church, which is oh. out here where we are. Y'all, um, you just watched, please. Uh, you just listened to your podcast about that, but keep going. Yeah, please so Kelly Ann recommended. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, oh, was it on um, uh, Tarjean Stevens? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, so good. Um, yeah, loved it. Thank you. Yes, for it's an amazing podcast, and she's so nice. We got to interview her last season, and she's great. Anyways, Moral Revolution, they have that similar like purity culture 2.0 flavor of like, oh, like definitely you should wait till marriage to have sex, but you're still great. And like, if you need to like maybe masturbate a little in order to like hold yourself off, then like you should do that. Mm -hmm. But like also maybe don't like it's a lot of but also like back and forth only a little bit yeah yeah (laughs) like Like whatever can keep you from like crossing the line into absolute sin well only if you're a woman because men can't masturbate right right right. because they can't control themselves so they really need to double down yeah otherwise but you know and like only if it's not you know fantasizing about someone yeah. else. Yeah, there's, like, specific yeah. rules sort around, Sort of, like, like, ethical masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not ethical, but, like, Christian moral. Yeah, Christian yeah. ethical. Yeah. Right. And, like, God will forgive you if you've had sex. And I'm like, well, but what is that actually communicating? That's still communicating yeah. exactly. that you've sinned and maybe you're not going to, like, burn in the pits of hell, which I suppose is a, like, progressive thing. God got thing. a little kinder, I guess. Yeah. 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 Anymore. He's just a dick yeah. on, on, on Saturdays. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's the idea that like uh, oh yeah god will forgive you if you have extramarital sex but also it's still bad yeah, it still also, needs to be right. forgiven don't do it and divorce so, is still horrible but god can still redeem that yeah you know, like well, those kinds of things yeah, yeah. so the yeah, values so, are pretty similar um maybe right. just like hell light versus like yeah yeah hardcore yes. hell. being a little bit more loosey-goosey yeah in terms of the the specifics of yeah. you know your yeah. hell proximity basically totally (laughs) yeah i went to the bssm the bethel school of supernatural ministry and it was there was a purity week very early on in our first trimester the indoctrination was astounding and literally i was actually told that it i needed to shut down my body to have success 
And that's what mattered. So mm-hmm. when I tell you I am undoing so much mm-hmm. bullshit, yeah. <laughs> it runs deep because that I was literally told that's the path to success. Shut down your body. You don't need that right now. Mm-hmm. You'll need it when you're married. And miraculously, it was all just supposed to like come back. And yeah. I'm like, no. So like I really identified Julia with you talking about like crying after sex. Mm-hmm. Like I remember like the first Maybe 10 times I had sex with my husband. I would just cry. And I was like, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything. I'm so sorry I'm having this reaction, but I also can't stop it. And (laughs) it's so many people experience that. And I'm like, that's devastating. So anyway, shout out to Moral Revolution Mm -hmm. for ruining lives every day. And of course, they obviously (laughs) hold zero space for LGBTQ plus community. Like that is still very much off the table. Don't worry. God can heal you. You're allowed to be gay now, but you're just not allowed to. Act on it. Act on it. Yeah. So, right. Um, right. Yeah. We're going to like gatekeep like sex and relationships from you. Yeah. Like, you still like deserve heaven, but like yeah. not sex. Like, yeah. you don't have heaven if you don't have like sex yeah. or relationships yeah. or any other good thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, God God still loves you if you're sinning, but he won't let you stay that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, God loves you too much for yeah. you to stay that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's there you go. Idea. There's healing for you. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah. So, Don't worry. Anyways. We've seen lots of success. All that being said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slightly tangential, but you know, we're always here for a good knock on purity culture. So we're kind of like coming to the end of our episode, which is always the worst part about any podcast recording because it's so fun to just like vibe with you guys. But I have to ask to have two sex therapists in the house. I must know what is your top sex tip for people coming out of purity culture? Help the people. We are struggling. (laughs) What do we do? What are the basics? I think the first thing is is just to be easy on yourself. Mm. Inside the church and outside of the church, there's so many expectations placed on sexuality, what sexual success should look like. The key word there being should. That's the real yeah. uh, swear S word, by the way. It's not shit. It's it's should. Um, <laughs> but be easy on yourself. Go slow. Um Take some deep breaths uh, and, and also give yourself permission to explore more of what you like outside of sexual spaces as well um, and invest in things that are really important, meaningful to you. Uh, and in that way, you, you know, that, that carries over then into the sexual relationship. What happens in a sexual relationship happens in other parts of, of, of uh, the, the relationship as well. So, yeah. Um, that's where I would start. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the most important one to piggyback, um, to give a specific example of what you already said. Yeah. Uh, you know, for many people, particularly women, we learned that desire was all bad and desire had all kinds of sexual connotation, but at least for me, that was desire for sleep was bad. Desire for food was bad. Eating disorders were rampant in my small community. Uh, So all kind of desire and pleasure was bad. So Hmm. sex, that's a, that's a big jump. If you don't know what you want for dinner, Right. If you don't know oh what book you want to read, right. if totally. you're not sure like how to spend this like hour of free time, yeah. 
If you feel like you're not allowed to enjoy a milkshake. Right, right. Absolutely. So, so part of the work is scaling back and just thinking about in everyday circumstances, like what, what do I want? What would feel good? What's pleasurable? And that also like takes some of the pressure off of sex uh, because Mm -hmm. pleasure, desire, even outside of the church, like that's kind of sensational. And that can be a lot for someone who grew up in a very repressive kind of community. And then I would say, start talking about it. So if you're in a partnership, talk about it with your partner, but make it easy and digestible. Maybe pick one question, um, set a timer for 20 minutes. Like don't overstimulate yourself sure. with yeah, it. Absolutely. That's good. That's really yeah, smart. That's really valuable. I think that maybe as people try to like deconstruct and they're like, okay, I see all these things that are wrong. You want to tackle all of them at once mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and try and to tear it all down at once. And there's a pressure also to make up for lost time, right? Yeah. which is understandable because mm-hmm. um, there, there's, there's a lot of grief that comes um, yeah. with, with the deconstruction process as well. But yeah, yeah, it's really, really important to, yeah, take your time with it. So. Yeah. The deconstruction uh, culture actually has the same myth as the Christian culture, sure which does. is like, all right, you can now fuck. So, like, it's going to be, like, really good now, which is right. why we were all told when we got married, right? Uh-huh, and, like, uh-huh, the deconstruction yeah. world is like, come over here. Guess what, guys? Like, we sex is sex better. Over yeah. Here. But <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work that way. It's yeah. going to take some time, which is honestly discouraging, but, like, yeah. we owe ourselves and our communities wow. honesty. And wow. this is a long journey. It is worth it. There is pleasure along the way. It isn't like in six months or six years, Mm -hmm. like that's when the good stuff happens. It'll all Mm -hmm. happen along the way, but like that myth still exists in the deconstruction world and it's really unhelpful. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I think there's so much pressure to be like, before I was a Christian and now after, my sex Mm -hmm. life is so much better, you know? And like, it's like literally just the format of a testimony. It's the same. Before I was addicted to drugs and now I follow Jesus in my life is better and it's like sometimes healing i mean not sometimes pretty much all the time healing (laughs) is so much more complicated than yes and it's not linear yes it's gonna twist and turn and there's gonna be times where it feels like it's going backwards and then Mm -hmm. like things are gonna come up that you didn't even realize were traumatizing or were were relevant um as you unearth all of the trauma and break it all down. But yeah, I love that you brought up pleasure and following your pleasure because I think for me, I didn't necessarily have an outward manifestation of anxiety around sex when I got married at 18. (laughs) But I think I, prior to and even now, am a pro at disassociating. Yeah. And um, mind over matter is, you know, like a very big value that can be hard. And so learning to be present and to be like what feels good right now or even just this thing feels good right now and I'm just going to acknowledge that has been a huge part of sexual or non-sexual healing I would say for me yeah if I can add to that actually I've been focusing on delight recently like what do I delight in Mm -hmm. and so even this morning I was like I have a bunch of emails I need to send and I was like but actually what if I enjoyed what I was writing to people what if I 
put in that extra intention to make them feel appreciated and loved. Like, it's like, wow, let's shift that a little bit Mm -hmm. and like delight a little more. Mm -hmm. And rarely I have found do delight and hustle coexist. (laughs) And so when you're talking about finding what you enjoy, I have a very hard time figuring out what I want. It is still the work of my life right now. And the more I step into that delight and enjoyment, the more obligation needs to be pushed out. Mm -hmm. And I've realized Mm -hmm. obligation and shame is a phenomenal motivator. I am performing. I am excellent. I am like going above and beyond and it is all externally or shame motivated. And I'm like, how much obligation shows up even specifically as women or as purity culture survivors, that must play a huge role. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, whoa, you're kind of blowing my mind. Anyway, so th- phenomenal. Thank you for that sex tip. We all need it. So um, women beings, let us know. What are you delighting in? What things are you enjoying? Aww. What do you enjoy outside of whatever obligation you might Such feel? Such a great question. I want to know. But Our final question, which is the question we love to ask all of our guests, and it's open to interpretation, and I'm excited to hear both of your answers. That is, what does woman being mean to you? We did have different interpretations of this. You go first. (laughs) So so I focused less on the word woman, part of being, Mm. because I'm not a woman and I don't want to perpetuate men telling telling women what to do. Um... I was thinking more about the word being and mm-hmm. noticing and really loving that the podcast title is woman being as opposed to woman doing or man mm-hmm. doing for that, ex- for, for that yeah. instance. And, and so much of impish rhetoric is, is about doing, mm-hmm. yeah. um, doing the right things, doing things, uh, in, in, in the name of Jesus, saving souls, like, uh, churches with like numbers of like people baptized every year, like, like that kind yeah. of stuff. So much of, uh, impish communities is around, is around doing. And, 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 and I buy into this uh, as well. Yeah. I have a hard time, uh, conceptualizing myself independent from like what I do, uh, yeah. what I do occupationally, what I do for other people, those types of things. So that, that's a, a really good reminder, uh, to kind of sit with, okay, like, who am I, you know, who, yeah. who is Jeremiah being, mm. uh, and, and not being from the perspective of like, what am I doing? But, but like, who am I actually like allowing myself to, um, you know, to be, to exude in, uh, mm. in, in this particular space and, and to really, um, you know, Kelly and to borrow your language to delight in that, mm. uh, delight in like the, the, the personality traits of, of, of myself. So, mm. And trust that people will like me if I am not doing shit for them. So yeah, yeah. that's a big Oof. one. I think still trust that people will still value Death you. To the people pleaser. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> My interpretation was about finding your podcast and listening. I found your podcast through Linda Klein, who's a mutual friend and mutual guest. Mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of podcasts and I mentioned this earlier, but I think we were off air. So I'll mm-hmm. say it again. I listened to the first episode I listened to was the one with Linda Klein, but I've listened to, to many, many, many others. And 
even in that first podcast that I listened to with Linda, my impression was, oh, they ask the hard questions, which is what I love. I love it. And you ask questions that many people are afraid to ask. And those are typically the questions that we all want to discuss. And I would say those are the most important questions. If we are going to live like flourishing, like lives as human beings. So to me, what woman being means is the ability to like engage the hard, controversial, painful, beautiful, delightful things with honesty and vulnerability and like care for humanity. Oh, I love that. So good. Yeah. I feel like we haven't heard an answer like that before. Yeah. Yeah. That's a first. I love it. (laughs) With Linda Klein, I've listened to several interviews with her and, uh, Mm. and, and in listening to several of your other podcasts, I think, oh, I've never heard someone ask this person this question. Or mm. when I saw the questions that you sent to us, I'm like, I bet a lot of people want to ask about the fact that we had an affair, but like nobody, nobody is probably going to ask that. Mm. And I'm like, bring on all of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. Uh, we do love to dive into the gray, the, yeah. that in-between space that the church has told us is not safe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what if it is? What if we find mm-hmm. a lot more humanity there? And mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. I appreciate your appreciation. <laughs> I'm like, wow, thank you. Speaking of delight, you two are such a delight. And um, one of my also favorite questions as we start to wrap up is what resources do you would you recommend to our listeners? I mean, obviously, website, your website, your podcast, your Substack, your Instagram. But then outside of that, is there anything you would suggest for people? Within our podcast, actually, the last six months, we've been really exploring our uh, title, our subtitle, excuse me, the sex education the church didn't want you to have. And so six months ago, we began a series in which we answered the question, well, what is the sex education the church wanted us to have? And we Mm -hmm. talked about the seven Mm -hmm. deadly sexual sins, according to the church. Um, So uh, don't have sex before you get married. Don't be gay. Don't have needs or wants. Uh, Don't watch porn. Don't. Don't, oh no, now I'm forgetting them. I don't have an affair was one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't, um, don't ask questions. Um, mm-hmm. There's one that I missed, but I'll figure it out later. Uh, we did. <laughs> well, they can go look and they'll see right, it all when they thinking. go to listen. I just appreciated when you were talking about the seven deadly sexual sins. <laughs> I, I did too, which is why I forgot the seventh one. Um, and then we moved into a series called The Sex Ed That We Wish That We Had. Uh, mm. And we uh, interviewed, we started that uh, by interviewing Doug Brown Harvey, mm-hmm. who with uh, Michael Vigorito co-wrote the book, Treating Out of, Con- Out of Control Sexual Behavior. And in that, he talks about six principles of sexual health, consent, non-exploitation, discussion about contraceptives and unwanted pregnancy, honesty, shared values, and mutual pleasure. And we did a series Mm. of podcast episodes in each of those principles. Uh, And we are moving into actually starting, uh, I don't know when this is going to be released. We're moving into a new series uh, called uh, Partnership Building, uh, which is based on the work of couples research. John Gottman. Uh, He talks about uh, the um, qualities of healthy healthy relationships because healthy Mm -hmm. relationships, healthy long-term relationships is also healthy sexuality and vice versa. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the the journey that we are on. And if you uh, tune in to us uh, to to hear us, you can uh, pick and choose where you uh, want to want to enter that journey. So yeah. that's totally. our uh, information. Our podcast. I also think you might have been asking us to plug other people. That's right. And I love to plug other people. So uh, I already mentioned in terms of affairs, um, Esther Perel, State of Affairs, Dr. Wednesday Martin, untrue. In terms of the more general ideas around deconstruction and sexuality, we've already mentioned Linda K. Klein. Read her book, Pure. Absolutely. Shameless mm-hmm. by Nadia Boltz Weber is good, especially for those who are deconstructing sexuality and want to do that within spiritual or religious structures. Mm. Come as you are by Dr. Yes. Emily Nagoski is fantastic. Excellent book. Her website is great uh, and has some fantastic resources. She has a podcast come as you are, which is great as well. I had another person slipping my mind, but those are a few of my go-to people who, who I love, who are resources that are doing work that Mm -hmm. are similar to us, but have like a different angle and that you aren't going to get from us. I love that. I actually love almost all, I think there's a few in there that I am not familiar with, but love all of those resources. (laughs) So I'm like, yes, like read it. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for all those resources. Obviously, Women Beings, go check them out. Give their podcast a five-star review because Mm. they deserve it. Um, (laughs) You guys are just, speaking of delight, again, just so delightful to listen to. Your your relationship is so, so sweet to watch play out in the podcast. And also, again, you're so eloquent um, in the way you can describe purity culture and other other things that you discussed. So I really appreciate it and have really enjoyed it and will continue to enjoy it. Um, and of course, women beings, you know, to find us on Instagram and TikTok, give us a follow, give us a review because it really helps us out. Yeah. And, you know, across all the podcast across platforms, all platforms, all platforms across the board, five stars, five stars, five stars. <laughs> um, and so again, sex evangelicals, Julian and Jeremiah, thank you so much for your time and being here with us today. Yeah. And woman beings, we'll catch you in the next one. Bye.